paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest. When the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out, this place will be the richest land in the world. Now, the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. Fight like a demon, boy. Like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded by hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! if you choose. Princess Mononoke. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking about Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke with IndieWire's David Ehrlich. Film recently aired at the Japan Society in New York City. Find out more about what the Japan Society is up to at japansociety.org. They do great screenings all the time. Check them out, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Tell me a little bit of your background and why we're talking today. The literal answer is that I had been toying with the idea of writing something about Princess Mononoke for its 25th anniversary as uh, Sylvia at the Japan Society was aware. And then life got in the way. My toddler got in the way. Things got in the way. And I was struggling to find anything particularly original, pressingly so, any sort of epiphanies that I could make it worth my while to do. Uh, And so this seemed like a fun alternative talking to you. But in a broader sense, as uh, to what brought me here, I'm the film critic for IndieWire. I have been a very big fan of uh, Miyazaki's and anime in general for a very long time. If you want me to sort of go into my first encounter with this movie. You know, this movie came out in 1997. It was a time that was really pivotal in the relationship of many Americans, particularly millennials, had with anime. It was right at the cusp of the DVD boom when suddenly for exorbitant amounts of money, for the most part, I mean, you really had to pinch your pennies to participate in this. This is pre-crunchy roll and streaming and all of those things. 
anime was really coming over in a big way. It used to be, you know, you find the occasional tape of Ninja Scroll and they put My Neighbor Totoro in the adults only section of Blockbuster because they just automatically filed anime there. And a lot of this was led by John Lasseter, of all people, uh, you know, and bringing anime over to the States. But this was around the same time. So a few months before, I think, you started getting Cowboy Bebop DVDs imported over. They would release them four or five episodes at a time. When Neon Genesis Evangelion was finally more readily available. And when shows like Read or Die the TV and, and things like things that were very, like Trigun, things that were very formative, I think, for, for people who were in America and just getting into anime. And so... Even a few months before that happened, it was sort of in the air. And I remember reading enough at the age of 14 in, in Connecticut, 13, uh, about uh, Princess Mononoke that when it opened in select theaters, the, the closest one was about an hour away from my house up in Westport, I decided that it would be worth the energy to convince my grumpy old father to drive me and a friend an hour upstate to go see Princess Mononoke. But you had to pick your battles with him and with that, you know, adventures and movie going. It tells me a lot in retrospect that that's one that I chose to fight. I must have been really passionate about going to see it. I don't think I had seen a Miyazaki movie before, but this seemed, you know, so epic. And it really seemed to sort of speak to where I was and the kind of visuals I was excited to see. And yeah, I think that in turn ended up being a formative experience for me. I remember my dad falling asleep after about 15 minutes and then waking up and just being like, I have to drive a fucking hour home now, <laughs> like for nothing, for a nap. Um, but I I think I was so immediately struck, even before we get into sort of what makes this story special and why it's indicative of Miyazaki's storytelling. On the whole, I think I was just stuck by the the fluidity of the animation, the way that it moved. I mean, I think being raised on... Disney animation and, and things like that, which is nothing to slouch at. I mean, golden age of Disney animation is beautiful, but there is a quality of movement to Miyazaki's work and certainly in his most robustly animated film to date in Princess Mononoke and that opening attack scene. I mean, it really was um, sort of, you know, the proverbial Star Wars moment for me of uh, not that this was like the one movie that changed everything necessarily, but in terms of opening my eyes to what animation around the world was capable of, what they were doing the kind of kinetic sense of vitality that was in the animation, the, the violence that was inherent to it in a way, even if it was, you know, for a good cause, uh, not just like the wanton violence of a ninja scroll, but just like the visceral force of, you know, Ashitaka riding um, and, and fighting against the corrupted boar god. Like these things were very iconic to me at that age. And I think like many people, this was sort of, even though I, I would argue in hindsight, this is one of the more complicated Miyazaki texts and uh if everything was if time were a flat circle you know you laid it out this may not be the film of his that you would pick for someone to start with but it was i think a major introduction for a lot of people my age and around there and the movie i love to this day so we are kind of in the same boat because i was supposed to do an episode about this movie and do the whole thing the interviews the discussions all that and yeah life got in the way for me as well so i didn't have an opportunity to talk about how there was the anniversary screening, you know, the Japan society put it on and the great work that they're doing over there. So yeah, we're kind of in the same boat here. I'm curious though, because I'm very unfamiliar with Miyazaki's work. This was probably my first Miyazaki. So to wow. talk about what you just talked about. Uh, yeah. This was a weird starting place. Where is a good place for me to start proper? 
Well, so I, I'm thinking about that question a lot right now in the context of having a, a young child, um, which I do I have a two and a half year old. And we've watched like bits and pieces of various movies. But when it gets to the age where he's actually going to like sit down and watch something start to finish, I think a lot about My Neighbor Totoro as being a first movie for him, despite what the blockbusters of the early 90s would tell you about where it should be filed. I think it's, uh, you know, an extremely appropriate movie for a young child. I have nieces who I recommended it to when they were around four or five and they loved it. Um, I don't know if that means it's the best gateway for an adult man. A lot of Miyazaki's films are really about finding dignified ways to live in a cursed world and like an irrevocably cursed world. And some of his films distill that cursedness. You know, some of them have environmental concerns, as you see in Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa Valley of the Wind and so on. But often some of the more intimate ones distill that sense of cursedness into individual human bodies. Uh, and My Neighbor Totoro is a beautiful movie that's almost without conflict, which is one of the reasons it's so great for children. But the the overarching plot is that these little girl's mother is sick with an undisclosed illness of some kind, which I think sort of speaks to what I'm talking about. And they're trying to realize how they can navigate this world, knowing that there is that sort of dark force, that there is this corruption of a kind. And it's a movie with a happy ending and uh, nobody dies, but um, that does kind of make it a really gentle gateway into the preoccupying idea that he's always work with but there's like you know something like uh, castle in the sky or porco rosso porco rosso is undervalued as like maybe like the just most purely enjoyable mizaki there is i mean castle in the sky is a great rollicking adventure but porco rosso about an aviator in the 1930s who's turned into a pig by which is curse it's very casablanca meets you know a lot of the aesthetic of spirited away that he was working out it's really haunted but so much fun great dog fights in the sky. I mean, it's got a great romance. Um, that's a that's a wonderful place to start. If anything about Princess Mononoke sort of threw you for a loop and had you scratching your head, Porco Rosso might might knock down some, some doors. The plot of Princess Mononoke felt very dense at times. And I'm just like, now who is this person again? And what are these little creatures? And how do they play into this? And I mean, I think I've followed it okay but there are a lot of times yes where i was scratching my head going I, I think i get what's happening but i'm not entirely sure i've seen the movie you know i don't know how many times uh but yeah i mean it is one of those movies where particularly in the second half and the first half is very linear but in the second half once all the various forces are sort of collapsing onto them each other in the forest it's it's complicated both plot wise and also sort of ethically and what, it, how these, I think it's, it's deliberate that there's so much going on because people are sort of finding their way through this moral morass in, in real time. Um, and that's part of the interest, the soldier soldiers who are being dispatched by the emperor, which is not very well established who are sort of uh, uh, shifting their allegiances and, and, you know, everyone is contending with different degrees of hates and agendas. And uh, it gets very, very complicated in a way that, maybe none of other Miyazaki's movies do, uh, which is a funny thing for a movie that was so enormously popular that that would be the one. But I think that there is also still such a clarity in terms of the the broader emotional framework of what's happening that he sort of gets away with not, and you as a viewer can, can be at peace not knowing exactly what is happening and then there are times, you know, when it comes to the, the spirit, the spirit of the forest, the forest god, it's deliberately sort of inexplicable and otherworldly uh, in a way that is meant to 
elude our understanding in a certain way and represent the end of a kind of mystery in the world, uh, you know, that, that modern industrialization and modern, I mean, like 16th century, but like that, that, that eradicated forever, that it was sort of the end of these unknowable spaces in Japanese life and society and their culture um, and in the world at large, where, you know, suddenly man was everywhere and everything was grist for the mill and everything was being mined. And, uh, and so I think some of that uncertainty as to what's happening in the movie can work to its advantage if you let it. How does Miyazaki pick his projects? Out of a hat, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I think. Fair uh, enough. Um, I I don't know. I mean, the uh, he, you know they all come from different places. Um, I, I think it's that question has only gotten more interesting as he's gotten older. You know, he had you know his career started his feature film career started with making a loop on the third film, which was obviously material that. He did not generate originally, but he put his own spin on the way that that movie's directed, Castle of Cagliostro. And then, like, you know, later on, when Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, Castle in the Sky, he's really just tapping into his his own imagination, his own preoccupations, particularly with man's relationship to nature, um, or humanity's relationships to nature, I should say. From the very beginning, it wasn't necessarily like a avatar-like, you know, humans versus nature dynamic it was implicitly from the start the sense of humans a human society needs to take from needs to encroach on nature in order to to grow it is not something that is a necessarily reflection of evil it is the natural way of things you see this very clearly in okay but they have to grow in a way that is respectful and and dignifies nature and sees nature as um not just something for them to use but an, a force that's sort of on the same plane with a the Wind Rises, he is adapting the life story, which is my favorite movie of his. He's adapting the life story of a World War II era engineer and combining it with some fictive melodrama. Um, his next and presumably final film, um, which will come out hopefully sometime in the next three years, is an adaptation of a book that he, I'm sure a very loose adaptation of a book that he's loved for decades on end. Um, Spirited Away was inspired by like a like a, a little girl like some relative's friend or something like that asking him a question or like wanting to make a movie for him or maybe it was his granddaughter i can't exactly remember i think the inspiration comes from all over but it flowers and mutates in very strange ways and with princess mononoke what's interesting about it is just how historically accurate and and researched and rich it is i mean this is a fantasy movie in some respects it does take place you know very particularly in the muromachi era of japan which was 1400s. There, there is so much that is historically accurate. This is unique among his films. Uh, it at least wasn't to that point, just because it, its sense of Japanese history is so rich and well-researched and specific in a way that provides a really solid foundation for the fantasy built on top of it. I was so confused the first time I watched it because I just kept waiting for Princess Mononoke. Not knowing that that's not a person and thinking, oh, well, this young girl that lives with the wolves, or maybe it's the the big white wolf itself, is Princess Mononoke. No, no. The, the word Mononoke, it's a Japanese word for, for shape-shifting, for like a kind of supernatural being. Uh, this was one of many things that I think were kind of lost in translation. John Lasker setting like the first 
big dubbing project uh, to bring this movie over to America. There are all sorts of hijinks that Miramax got involved in. Harvey Weinstein, you know, always everyone's uh, most helpful collaborator who has the best interest of the movie in mind, of course. There are a few cultural things that had to be smoothed over. Neil Gaiman's script, I think, is very effective. But uh, yeah, some things get lost. But I'm glad they kept the title. I mean, even if it doesn't, even if you are waiting for a Mononoke to show up the entire time, I, I do think there's something kind of evocative about the title. What were some of the things, because I've only seen this in the original Japanese with the English subtitles, what kind of changes did they make when they had to adapt it? There, I mean, there are little things and there are big things. I mean, I think with any dub, you have you know particular instances, particular lines that are smoothed over, the length is changed in order to fit the animation. But in the English version of Mononoke, for example, there is voiceover at the very start. It's not particularly offensive, but it's just it, it's a sign that the movie is handholding an audience a little bit more than I think you might need now. I mean, Weinstein, who was as condescending uh, an executive as there has ever been, was who was desperate to trim this movie by like 40 minutes, was also just very much of the mind that it needed to be dumbed down for American audiences to enjoy it. I don't know if those marching orders made their way to Neil Gaiman, but there were probably there are a few places that need to be smoothed over. But this is such an unusually hard movie, I think, to translate because unlike Kiki's Delivery Service or some of the other Studio Ghibli movies like Pompoko or something. It's like, it's so deeply baked into Japanese history that, and some things like the word Mononoke itself are are not going to translate very well. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, I saw this when I saw this in theaters in, in 1997, the, uh, the voice cast... I thought they did a good, I mean, Claire Danes, Billy Crudup, they, I think they all handled themselves really, uh, really well. Billy Bob Thornton as Jigo is a really strong choice. I think he really captures sort of the rascally antagonistic spirit of that character. Uh, it's an interesting, and, and Gillian Anderson in particular as uh, um, Moro is strong. I mean, there's a lot of interesting voice work. I don't know. They could have done worse. They could have done worse. There's nothing... As, as an American who does not speak Japanese fluently, there, there are no examples that scream out to me as being particularly galling, but I'm sure that some people out there might be able to think, they might think differently about that. We recently recorded an episode about Fukusaku's uh, Black Lizard, and we were talking about how interesting it was that Miwa, the lead from that, is voicing the white wolf from Mononoke. And just what an interesting choice because Miwa has that kind of... Um, ambiguous sexuality and just playing that potent i would say like mother wolf type character that is a quality that works well for the japanese performance in this movie i think they're they are trying to you know similar to what i was talking about the spirit god and the, the god of the forest like to have the natural world be less anthropomorphized i mean you see it in the way that the the wolf and the wolf gods speak to each other with to almost telepathically or speak, you know, to send telepathically. Um, they don't move their mouths. Um, there is this sense of this enigmatic quality to the world of nature in the movie that I think is really deliberate and obviously enhanced by the various creatures of the forest. His care with the actors and the Japanese cast only grew more sort of intricate and, and involved as his career went on. I mean, uh, it's rare to, and it's rare to think about this of like a, uh, an intro, like a foreign language from your own language, vocal, vocal performance, but Hideaki Anno, 
who is the creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion, voices the lead character in The Wind Rises. And his the strangeness of his voice, voice performance in that movie, it, it's so affecting to me. It's so different from the rhythms and the tonality that you expect from um, a voice in an animated film uh, that it really felt like one of the great performances of the last however many years. Even I mean, that movie's almost 10 years old now, but um, that care, it is, it does get lost. Even when you bring in some great actors on the English side of things, uh, the intentionality of me is like, he's, like, he's as dedicated a perfectionist as the movies have ever known. And so that's obviously going to continue to the voice performances of his actors. So something will be lost in the dubbing. Yeah, I couldn't get over just how gorgeous everything was and how the, I mean, just the way that those tendrils are moving throughout the beginning and and really throughout the entire film, just wonderful to look at. I envy people that got to see this like yourself on the big screen. I mean, this is unique to Studio Ghibli. I mean, it's animation, motion. It's, it's all these things are always uh, where you sort of get the sense of whether you want, you love the animation or not in the way that the make characters move. But there is something so sort of viscerally awakening about seeing characters moving quickly in uh, Studio Ghibli films. And this movie opens with such uh, fantastic action sequence. And when you see uh, Ashitaka riding around and trying to get ahead of the corrupted boar god, I mean, it's it's so, the animation is so beautiful. It's so fluid. It's so expressive. And you can tell immediately I can't re- remember the statistics, but it's like truly some ungodly number of frames that Miyazaki touched himself in like of the cells of the animation cells that he um, may have like tried to delegate to another animator, but then eventually had to put his hand to in some way. Um, and one of the reasons why this movie basically broke his soul in half. I mean, he was able to get it out the door in only a few years, but uh, he is, if you read interviews from him around the time, I mean, he is so defeated by the experience and it's amazing that his arms have just not fallen off. I can understand some of his movies taking six, seven years, but then I'm looking and what was previous one was just like three years before this. I think it was. He was moving at a fast clip in the nineties. I think that was the most prolific period of his life. And then things slowed down. I mean, he had spirited away just, just four years after Princess Mononoke, which is pretty incredible for a movie that, you know, many people consider to be his masterpiece, but you know, he is uh, you know, so many people's sort of favorite cinematic curmudgeon. I mean, he doesn't really seem to do a lot besides work and then also rue the fact that he has to work, um, you know, or just like chain smoke in his office and complain about, about the world and the work that he has to do. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he feels compelled to do it and, and to grouse about it because if he didn't do the work, you know, what would he be complaining about? Uh, which is a, a way of living that I completely relate to, even if the, the work that I do is not not exactly on this level. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he really dedicates himself to what he's doing. And so Herculean, almost impossible production schedules at the expense of his collaborators. I mean, this isn't necessarily something to glorify because I'm sure that the toll it's taken on the people who have worked at Studio Ghibli is immense. And there have been so many stories of people who have quit in rages and, and cursed him out and... Uh, um, it's it's not for the faint of heart, but there's only one Miyazaki. There's only so many of his movies. I guess that's the cost of you know. But he, you know, he, he so many of his movies. We already talked about are about sort of the, the the nature of living in this 
cursed world of making the best of it. Of, and, and he embodies that in his, in his own way. I mean, like he, I think, really feels demonized by his gift, by his need to make these films, by um, the toll that it takes on his family and his his role as a father is very um, well known that he is not, he's been sort of an absentee parent who's been very cold with his son Goro, who uh, has made films for Studio Ghibli uh, that have not been very well received by his dad. Um, yeah, I mean, he's definitely paid a price in a way that many of his characters have, in particular the, the protagonist from um, from The Wind Rises, but also Ashitaka here. Uh, so he, you know, he's got the courage of his convictions. I'll say that much. You talked about the motion, and that's one of the things that when I think about anime, especially on TV, you think about the cheapness and just the let's have the still image with the background moving behind, just repeating every three frames or something, or like moving people on the the twos, the threes, the fours, just trying to cut down on the expense. It doesn't feel like any of that is here. This feels so fluid. There was a lot of money poured into this movie by the standards of what Studio Ghibli had worked with before. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because anime is so good at those cheats and making them, you know, they're distracting, you notice them, but they're not destructive to the work a lot of times. It's sort of part of the aesthetic. I mean, to go back to Hideaki Anno and Neon Genesis Evangelion, that to my mind is the single most famous example of what you're talking about. And that like they were so running out of money towards the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion that there are like minute long stretches of the final episodes of that show where it's just two characters looking at each other and not talking because they simply did not have the money to animate anymore um, at the climax of this you know, massive story. That is not the case with Studio Ghibli's uh, later work. Uh, even the earlier work is so beautiful. Miyazaki, you know, he's the chip off a different block. I mean, he is just not someone I think who could live with farming things out to other units with with making those sort of sacrifices. I mean, he will put his soul on the line before detracting from the quality of his work. And uh, that can be really brutal on the people involved in making it. But you take a look at any 10 second stretch of Princess Mononoke and you're like, oh, okay, I see why. I asked you as far as the good starting point for him, but I do have to also ask you, what's your favorite one? Which one do you go back to? The Wind Rises is definitely my favorite. I think it's a controversial Opinion that movie was met with some controversy, um, understandably. I mean, it is a very romantic and sympathetic portrait of the engineer who created the uh, Zero Bombers in World War II. I mean, the character is deeply, deeply tortured about the pain of his art, this thing that he lives his dream of creating airplanes being betrayed uh, towards violent ends and being used as weapons of war and the movie is is very keyed into that um dialogue in his internal dialogue and wrestling with whether it's worth making beautiful things in such a, a cursed world um it, it obviously feels like an extension of miyazaki himself um that movie just absolutely destroyed me the first time i saw it it is uh to to this date uh, the last film that he made, it had all the hallmarks of a final film. I wrote about it at the time with authority because he he'd retired like twice before, but he would retired again with this. And I was like, well, this is definitely it. He's never going back to the well. This is a kind of movie that can only be made by an old master at the end of their career. Um, and it is like a, a, a summary, like a summarizing work. And then, of course, you know, just despite me, he uh, went back 
and announced that he was just kidding. I'm making another movie. This one will definitely be the last one. You got to think. But uh, I, you know, I'm obviously psyched that he is. Uh, he's got another movie in him. But The Wind Rises is my favorite. I have I have great love for Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away and really all. Of, I mean, he, uh, Miyazaki has never made a movie that I have disliked. I mean, some like Ponyo uh, which I really look forward to sort of like rediscovering when my kid is a little bit older, uh, hit me maybe not as hard as some of the others, but uh, there's still so much ingenuity and imagination and flavor in it that I cherish the fact that it exists. But so I, I will definitely stick up for The Wind Rises always. Um, I think that movie is going to be back in the conversation a little bit next summer when Oppenheimer comes out, because I would imagine that there are some pretty obvious similarities between those two subjects and it could be an interesting touchstone for what Christopher Nolan does with that. You talked about the cursed earth. You also mentioned environmentalism. How do you see those two things playing together? Miyazaki, obviously an avowed environmentalist. He treats the natural world, as I was saying earlier, is like not just something that is like at our disposal and sort of the idea that we're stewards of the world, but also as a life force that is on the same level, if not you know much holier than humanity um, and should be treated with a dignity. And obviously he personifies that in Princess Mononoke with all the very animistic approach to filmmaking and the spirits. And, and then you see in this movie, Lady Eboshi, um, who represents the industrial obviously not the capital letter industrial revolution, but like an industrial revolution um, and works at Irontown and is really trying to uh, establish that. But she's not seen necessarily as sort of the greedy industrialist that we would think that that character would be portrayed as. She is a beacon of light for the dispossessed of the world. I mean, she is building a community for for lepers, for sex workers, for really everyone who needed a home to go where they can sort of live in prosperity and peace. Um, And the cost of doing that is raising the earth uh, a little bit. Um, But it is not a pure evil. It is... uh, she she really does have it out against Monono, against uh, um, Sen and then the wolves. I mean, it gets really personal, but um, she she isn't purely doing it out of this like greedy sense of evil. Um, I'd say if there is any sort of antagonistic, purely antagonistic force, it's Jigo, who is just an agent of chaos and working for the emperor. But um, so you have this this sort of dynamic where you're you're wanting to preserve the natural world. That's what Sense character represents. That's what Ashitaka is coming in here and, and sort of learning about and trying to navigate between these two sides. But it's not as simple as good and evil and industry versus nature. Um, there is an acknowledgement tacitly that this is in this is happening. There is no way of simply like the forest winning. Uh, you know, like this this is a story not of you know, will uh, the forces of humanity incur in the forest and the damage there? But like, how can they do that in a way that preserves a shred of dignity and and more importantly, doesn't let hatred corrupt uh, everyone who is perturbed by this? Everyone is angered by it, who loses something. And that's how the movie starts with a god being, you know, corrupted by their hatred. And then really the moral crux of the story is, is the main I mean, I should not technically the, the title character, but is, is San, I kept calling her Sen, I'm sorry, is San going to be, um, is she going to be corrupted by that hatred? Is she going to uh, find a place in her heart to sort of have some sort of understanding for humanity? And that is Ashitaka is navigating these two sides. That is what he is, um, you know, tasked with doing. Uh, and 
I think what's really what's so interesting and where that all traces back to for me is in talking about the continuity of this happening, the continuum of of these things, is that the movie starts when the movie starts, rather, Ashitaka's people, the Amishi people, have been wiped out essentially or like holding on to trying to not go extinct for 500 years they've been persecuted by the emperor of japan they've been trying they've been you know in the process of being eradicated and so when we meet ashitaka at the beginning he is not just like living in this fantasy world where everything is great and then learning about uh you know the world that's being stripped away and, and ruined and trying to fight against that he is the last prince of his kind i mean like if he goes back to his village when this is all over which he doesn't uh uh, you know, there's maybe not going to be anyone there left. I mean, like it's it's like we're getting to that point. And so the movie begins subtly, but but also implicitly in media res in this sort of dissolution of of that purity of like cultures are being destroyed. Uh, it, we're in that process. And there is that sort of inevitability and the, the momentum to that when the movie starts. And I think that that is something that right from the start makes this a more complicated and interesting movie than you know what you might think of as the average sort of environmentalist story but i like that it gets injured and that it carries that injury through so much of the film and that that is such a mark for him that he has this injury and that he has to put it put the water on it and all this that it just it's a, a very nice character trait for him as well as actually like threatening to him it's wild how much that curse is he gets him right at the start of the movie and really i think other, other movies other filmmakers may have had the inclination to sort of get it out of the way so they can focus on other things and may not make it such a nuisance but it is so uh integral to the story that he's telling here and there are really interesting flourishes where you see the curse spreading i mean really at the very end when they are giving the uh forest god's head back uh, you can see the curse spreading in that moment all over his body and to San. Uh, and I've always sort of wrestled with, with the meaning of that moment when you like the, you know, they're, the curse is sort of overcoming them right at the last moment before it's spread over the land. And it does, it does sort of speak to the ambiguity of the way this movie ends, which is not, you know, a happy movie, a happy ending or a sad ending, but sort of both in alternating waves and leaves you on a sort of very ambivalent place, which is very you know, vintage Miyazaki, but it's like, okay, but it seems like a happy ending. Also there was atomic bomb imagery, but now the leaves are growing back, but obviously the forest God is dead. Like, you know, there's a lot um, to go back and forth there. And yeah, I think it just sort of speaks to, to Miyazaki's feeling of like, just getting to the status quo that we live in now with like accepting that th- this is, true to the dynamic between people that people are going to have different and conflicting agendas that, you know, humanity will exploit nature for their own survival and benefit. But, you know, really a two hour and 20 minute movie about reaching the question of like, okay, how do we do this? I know you didn't have a chance to write your piece, but is there anything that you would have written about that we haven't talked about? There are so many great pieces about this movie. And it was really a case of like doing my research about them and realizing that, you know, my my the thoughts that I had had been said so eloquently before. I what I was kind of hung up on and wanted to talk about in my piece and couldn't really figure out a way of doing that was like Miyazaki's entire life has been um, influenced by the shadow of World War II, and this particular movie was heavily inspired by the Yugoslav Wars in the late '80s and early '90s. And these are these are really bleak 
heavy inspirations. But at the same time, when I think about this idea of not being corrupted by hatred, uh, by like the hatred towards your fellow person, towards nature, it's something that I struggle with in a modern context because so many of the villains in the our contemporary world right now are so cartoonishly evil, more cartoonishly evil than Miyazaki would ever allow them to be in his movies. I wonder how applicable this message is in the real world. It's like there, there are forces out there, to my mind anyway, that are so clearly fascistic and worth hating. And, um, you know, obviously you can feel this movie tapping you on the shoulder and being like, yeah, yes, but uh, take a step back. But in, in, in Princess Bononoke, you know, Lady Eboshi has redeeming qualities. She has a reason for what she's doing. Um, the emperor, who is a less well-defined character um, is never, never shows up on screen. Jigo is just his emissary. Like everyone has that nuance, but I think that the, a lot of the villains in our world right now don't. Um, obviously that was the case in World War II in some arenas, but uh, yeah, I wonder how the, the themes, the more humanistic themes, his preoccupation with finding beauty in the ruins of, and then in like the, the darkness and, and the violence of our world, like how that holds up at a time when the ecological situation has only gotten so much worse and the people who are fanning the fires are really cartoon characters and how, and how evil and, and hate filled they are. I mean, it's like, okay, is this, is this still as relevant? Is, is it naive to buy into some of the, to, to buy, to accept the ending of this movie where San and Ashitaka are like, okay, we have some differences here, but like you go to the forest, I'll go to Irontown. We'll still be friends. We'll see each other. You can coexist with Lady Eboshi. Like, is that realistic now or is it kind of idealistic even with its moral ambivalence? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that I love that Miyazaki, you know, makes the kind of movies that allow you to think about them in that way and, and can have a longer half-life as a result. So what other projects are you working on these days? Well, uh, I, you know, I'm really just sort of in the trenches of uh, reviewing new releases over at IndieWire. It is rare that I um, am able to give myself the time to write about something that is not a clear and present danger <laughs> to, to people who are going to the movies. Um, but uh, I, I, especially over the summer when things are a little bit quieter, I like recently took the opportunity to write about Kishlovsky's Three Colors trilogy, which is recently restored and is making its way across the country at the time we record this. So that was a real pleasure for me. But for the most part, I'm just gearing up for, uh, for the fall festival circuit. I should mention, if we're talking about Mononoke, that IndieWire is doing a big... 90s week in the middle of August, the dog days, you got to have something to do. We are, and the new release calendar really dries up. So we're just looking back the 90s, our favorite films of the decade, interviewing the people who made them um, and doing another, a number of other related pieces around that. And Princess Mononoke, you know, spoiler alert, comes up on more than one occasion. It's The movie is on our top 100 list, of course, but we're also celebrating Joe Hisashi, who composed the music for it. And I think, you know, Joe Hisashi's music for so many Miyazaki movies is as iconic as like a John Williams score for Spielberg movie or something like that. But I think Princess Mononoke might be his, his real masterpiece. Um, I mean, the score for this movie is just so sweeping and so uh, evocative. Uh, so many of the great scores from the nineties are actually not super readily available in the way that we think of things being available these days. I mean, they're not on Spotify, uh, but Hisashi's work for this movie is if you need something just to, 
listen to put you in a different frame of mind. If you need something to write to, you could really not do a whole lot better than uh, putting on the Princess Mononoke score. If people want to keep up with you and your work, where should they go? Uh, in the unlikely event anyone wants to do that after listening to me monologue about this movie for an hour, they can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, but more, uh, and I'm on Letterboxd under my name as well. Uh, but really, both those things are kind of just pipelines for the work that I do over on IndieWire. So I would recommend you go over to over at IndieWire, which has all sorts of different things going on all the time. But uh, that's where you can find me reviewing the gray man and you know on happier days nope and uh things of that nature that's where it's happening david thank you so much for your time i really appreciate this thank you so much for having me on your show it's a pleasure in the moonlight i felt your heart quiver like a bowstring's Like the blade.